Welcome to Fault Tolerant. In this episode, I do something experimental. I do a solo episode where I talk about the properties of money and what sets cryptocurrencies apart from the traditional money systems. Hope you enjoy this show. Thanks for listening. In order to understand cryptocurrencies, I think the right place to start is with Bitcoin. But in order to understand Bitcoin, I think we should start with money. I think it's easy to conflate the definition of money with the current instantiations of money that we're used to. So we're all used to credit cards, debit, cash, and coins. And if someone asked you what is money, you might just point to those as the answer. But money has taken many forms over a long period of time. So those present day instantiations are probably not the complete definition of money. I think money is better thought of as a solution to a problem. So if you're going to have some functional society or economy, you need a thing that provides certain functions, that solves certain problems. Those functions are often given as store value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. In our money, we want something that will serve those three functions. Store value is pretty self-explanatory. We want our money to be able to store value so that we can use it in the future. Medium of exchange is where money takes one side of every trade. So if I'm going to buy some product, I provide money and I get the product. If I'm selling some product, I provide the product and I get money. So rather than having to barter in either of those two scenarios, we can use money and the whole exchange is vastly easier and simpler. The other function, unit of account, is where all the people in the economy understand and use the monetary units that we have to price things. So everyone understands what the value of $1 is, for example. These functions are what really matter. These are the things that we want out of our money. Now, the things that tend to serve these functions well, they tend to have certain properties. The properties include scarcity, fungibility, durability, portability, and divisibility. So scarcity is maybe the most important. If something is going to serve as money, it has to be scarce. If money is going to be a stand-in for value, then I can't just magically create a whole bunch more of the money if I'm not creating a bunch more value. If I could do that, then the, the link between value and the money would be broken, and the money would be broken. The other is fungibility. So we would like for the individual units of the money to be interchangeable with each other. If if it becomes really easy to know that this particular piece of money was involved in some particular trade, then it becomes possible for certain groups to refuse accepting money that, for example, was used in some kind of exchange they don't like. And if that happens, then those units of the money become less valuable than other units and the money becomes fractured and that introduces a bunch of overhead and is 
generally not a good thing. The another one is durability. So obviously whatever material we use as money, it should be durable in the sense that it shouldn't break down and crumble and erode after a month of use. Uh, if it did that, it would be a very bad store of value. Another one is portability. So we want whatever we use as money, we want it to be easy to move around and transport. If we use something like gold, gold is pretty portable if you're talking about small amounts, like the equivalent of $1,000 right now is not a huge amount of gold, but if you get into millions and millions of dollars, then you have tons or at least many pounds of gold, and that's hard to transport. Another is divisibility. So we would like our money to be easy to divide down to very small amounts. Ideally, we could easily divide the money down into thousands of a cent or millions of a cent. Uh, this is pretty hard in, with some materials like gold and pretty easy in others like in digital money. So materials or systems that have these properties tend to serve those three primary functions well. And again, all we care about is that the functions are served and these are just the properties that tend to serve those functions well. When it comes to actual systems or materials that implement these or that have these properties and serve these functions, there are two classes worth mentioning. There's the bearer assets and non-bearer assets. So bearer is where you actually have the thing. So something like cash or coins would be a bearer asset. If you physically hold the, the note or the coin, then you have the money. But there's another way of implementing money, and that is in a non-bearer manner. So you could just maintain a ledger. If you had some trusted party in the economy or in the society, they could maintain a ledger and simply keep a record that they could keep your name and some number beside it indicating how much money you have. And then if you wanted to spend some money, they could simply lower the number beside your name and increase the number by whoever you're paying. And if they were able to do that in, in a, you know, a convenient manner and in a, such a way that both parties could, could trust them, then you would effectively have a money system, even though you would never actually hold any money. The downside to a system like this is that you have to trust that entity. When people think about the money systems that we use today, they might think of cash and coins and think that we mostly live with bearer type assets. They might think that they have a couple thousand dollars and that they truly have that money. But only about 8% of the world's money is in this form of cash or coins. The rest is in a digital form. It's in the form of a ledger, as I uh, described a second ago. To oversimplify our money system a lot, we have a fiat money system where the government declares 
the money system of the country to be legal tender and that money is not backed by a physical good or commodity. Now, as I mentioned, most of the money in the world exists in digital form. And in a given country, you'll have the banks in the country maintaining these ledgers. And that is where the over 90% of the money is. So the banks effectively have a spreadsheet. It can be thought of as they're maintaining this spreadsheet and they have some row with your name, really your account number, but it's linked to your name and some personal information, but they have an entry for you and they have some amount. And when we spend money with debit, for example, you take your card, you go to some place, you use your card to verify your identity, essentially, and the computer at the merchant end will ping the bank, make sure you have the money, make sure you, the number beside your your account or your name is big enough, and then they will decrease that amount by whatever you're spending and increase the amount beside the name of the merchant in the spreadsheet. Or if the merchant is on another bank, then the banks will communicate. But effectively, the banks maintain these ledgers and the ledgers, the values in the ledgers change, and that's a perfectly functional money system. Well, using a digital ledger is a perfectly reasonable, perfectly functional way to implement money. But this fiat money system we have has some downsides. One is that there, most countries aim for something like 2% inflation. In Canada and the States, I think we're, we target for around that, that figure which is not too bad, but it's it's effectively a 2% tax if you're holding any of your wealth in, in money, in cash, then it's eroding at a rate of 2% per year, which is kind of like another tax. This makes for fiat money being a uh, not very good store of value. Another problem with having the these ledgers in the control of the banks is that they can freeze accounts if they decide to. They can seize funds. They can censor transactions. If the if one of their customers wants to interact with some merchant that the bank doesn't want to interact with for whatever reason, the bank can censor those transactions. So the people who have their money in the bank, they really don't have complete control over their money under this system. Another problem with this system, and this is not so much specific to having digital ledgers in banks, but every country in the world or most countries in the world have their own currency and they maintain their own monetary system, which may have some advantages in that if we all had one system and that system collapsed, it would be really bad. But there's also a massive replication of effort in if all of these countries, each within them have a handful of banks and each of those banks maintains a ledger, that's a huge amount of work. And that effort is paid for. We, you pay for it via taxes or, or bank fees or, and bank fees. 
and in many other ways. Another issue with this system, and again, this is not so much, this is not specific to using digital ledgers, but having just so many currencies means that international trade becomes really complicated. When different countries want to trade, we have to worry about conversions, and when you travel, you have to convert your money, and having different currencies generally just makes e-commerce much more difficult, and the world is increasingly moving in the direction of more and more of our commerce being online. So that's by no means an exhaustive list of the problems with the current money system, but now is a good time to talk about cryptocurrencies, and I will explain most of these characteristics using Bitcoin as the example. Most cryptocurrencies function effectively exactly the same, so this will apply to most cryptocurrencies. So as I explained with the banking system where they have a single digital ledger and you make a transaction and a number beside your name or account number changes, it's actually effectively the same thing with cryptocurrencies. There's a digital ledger and you can think of there as being one digital ledger. And when you make a transaction, you you broadcast this transaction, the network verifies that it's legitimate, and the value, the amount beside your name or your account, that number changes. Now, the important difference, though, is that with the banking model, there's the banks have complete control over the digital ledger that they maintain, and that introduces a whole bunch of problems. So what the way it works with cryptocurrencies is no entity, no company, no government, no individual has complete control over that digital ledger. So the cryptocurrency has this digital ledger, but no individual has complete control over it. In the banking model, you had a, an organization like a bank, and they maintained a single ledger. They hopefully have that ledger backed up across many computers, but the ledger is not shared across multiple organizations. In cryptocurrencies, you have hundreds, thousands of computers all over the world, and each of them has a complete copy of the ledger. So there's one logical ledger. There's a single ledger that everybody hopefully agrees on but everybody has a copy of it and one of the benefits of this is of course that if there's some natural disaster or some hack or something that's specific to just some set of computers then the network is fine it can withstand massive loss of individual computers and it can persist just fine so these computers that are spread all over the world that are maintaining these copies of the ledger and processing transactions and so on, they are doing all of that by running some code that is specific to the cryptocurrency. So to simplify a little bit, there's some code base and that code describes how the cryptocurrency is going to work and then every computer in the network runs the code and in doing so, the cryptocurrency functions. Each computer is able to download the copy of the ledger 
and verify that it's legitimate and check whether a new incoming transaction is legitimate and participate in mining and so on. An important benefit of having the implementation of the currency open source is that anybody can come along and fork the code. And what that means is they they create a complete copy of the code, they take it, and they go and start their own version of it. And they can change whatever they want. So in the case of Bitcoin, Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency, and it was forked many times. People created lots of different variations, and they were able to experiment with different variables, different uh, issuance amounts, like the amount of coins that are that are produced every unit of time. And one of the powerful things about this is that it allows for a huge amount of experimentation, which is extremely valuable. So if you have some project like Bitcoin and it can easily be forked, then how does it maintain value? Why wouldn't forking it and just copying it, wouldn't that mean that you could produce huge amounts of Bitcoin and the system would not function. But the thing is the the nodes in the network, like the Bitcoin network right now has thousands of computers running the Bitcoin software. You can go and take the code and create a copy of it and change something, but you can't force those computers to run your code. So if you take the code and change it, you can release it and try and convince people to run it. But unless you've done something important, probably no one will run it. And then you've simply got a couple computers running some code and it doesn't really mean anything. So while there are many cryptocurrency projects, they tend to have some things in common. Because these projects are competing for users and there's no entity like a government mandating that currency ABC is used exclusively. The currencies, these cryptocurrencies tend to compete for users based on providing what the users want, what people want in money. So there's this market where the market is demanding certain features from these digital currencies and the currencies are trying to provide those. So one of the things that people tend not to like very much with the current money system is the high inflation and therefore most cryptocurrencies are aiming for low inflation. Bitcoin for example is they issue a certain amount of Bitcoin every 10 minutes and that amount is cut in half every four years. So every day you could imagine there's a certain amount of Bitcoin being produced and each day it's the same, but then in a couple, let's say in in four years, that amount gets cut in half. And then this new lower amount is produced every day, and so on and so on until the issuance actually goes to zero in the case of Bitcoin. There are some people, myself included, who don't think this will actually work. Uh, Bitcoin security depends right now almost entirely on that that new generation of money. The security is paid for by new issuance of Bitcoin. But we will see whether this 
extremely low and then zero issuance works in the long run. Another aspect of cryptocurrencies that sets them apart from, from the traditional money system is they don't have a notion of countries. So there's no extra fee to send Bitcoin, for example, between Canada and the United States. In fact, Bitcoin has no notion of distance at all. It doesn't matter where you're sending the money because, again, all of the Bitcoin is really just in the ledger. There's a single ledger spread across many computers and you can, when you make a transaction and you're sending, you, you, you think of it like you're sending Bitcoin from Canada to New Zealand, you're really just sending a transaction into the network and then everyone changes their copy of the ledger and the person you were sending to in New Zealand, they see the update to the ledger and they now control the funds that you sent them. So cryptocurrencies have no notion of distance. They don't charge more if you're sending a great distance or if you are sending to someone who's in another country. They also do not charge based on the amount you're sending. With the traditional financial system, you're charged more if you're sending to another country. You're also charged typically based on how much you're sending. So if you do a a transfer to another country for $10,000, you pay some percentage of that amount rather rather than a fixed fee. In cryptocurrencies, you, the fee is completely agnostic to where you're sending it and how much money you're sending. You can send a transaction for $100 million and you can pay, you can pay the same fee that someone pays if they're sending $1. A small point on fees, typically the fees determine how fast your transaction is processed. And a common model is a sort of bidding system where there's a certain amount of transactions that can be done every second. And this amount is not very high right now. For most currencies, it's like 10 or so. And there's, so there's about 10 transactions that can be done each second. And essentially the users bid on those spots. So if you are not in a huge rush, you can set a low transaction fee and then your transaction will be processed. It just might take a little bit longer, but as long as the fee is not too low, it will be processed. The computers, the miners who are processing these transactions, they actually don't care how much money you're sending. They don't care what account you're sending to. All they do is look at which are the ones with the highest fees. I'll take those first. And if there's no other high fee transactions, I'll take the ones that are lower fee. Another advantage that people often cite for cryptocurrencies over the traditional monetary systems is that they are anonymous. This is partly true. The, a system like Bitcoin doesn't require you to provide your name and the ledger doesn't have any identifying information in it. But the entire transaction history of Bitcoin, for example, is fully transparent to everybody. So people can audit the transaction history and if they can identify that a certain account belongs to a certain person, 
they can start creating a web of interactions and they can deduce quite a bit about the identities of at least some of the accounts. And one of the ways this happens as well is companies like Coinbase, which is one of the ways people actually buy Bitcoin in the first place, is a company like Coinbase has your identifying information. So if you go on Coinbase and you make a purchase for some Bitcoin and you send, you withdraw that Bitcoin out of Coinbase into some account, Bitcoin or Coinbase can see who you were, who you are, and they can see that you sent that Bitcoin to a certain address. So now they know that you, that that, that account belongs to you. They can see that. And then they can see the transactions you make and they can, they can infer quite a bit. There are cryptocurrencies that are, that have much more anonymity. There's projects like Zcash and Monero, and they're, they're focusing primarily on anonymity, but systems like Bitcoin have this sort of in-between state and it's similar for Ethereum. Everything is public on Ethereum. So you can do the same kind of thing. Ethereum is planning, I think, to implement full privacy at some point in the future but that's a ways down the road. Another interesting aspect of cryptocurrencies is that, as I mentioned a couple times, you're, these all these systems essentially just have one ledger and that ledger sort of lives on the internet. It's this spread out across all these computers and it's there for people to, to make transactions with. The way the transactions work really is that you simply hold these private keys, which are these big, big strings, these big numbers. And the private keys are what allow you to make transactions. So what happens is you make a transaction and you use your private key to sign it and the network checks that signature. And if the signature is valid, essentially they can see that you are the true owner of the account and they all make a change to their ledger reflecting the transaction that you made. Now, one of the advantages of having, there are disadvantages to using private keys in this way. If you lose your private keys, you truly do lose your money. There's no one who can recover your funds, but the, the advantage to having the, your money, your account accessible only by these private keys is that nobody can seize your money you the only way anybody can get access to your money is if they get those private keys even a an extremely well-funded company like google does not currently have anywhere close to the computing power that they would need in order to quote unquote hack your account and i think the the amount of computing power they would need is something like billions of times what the entire planet earth has and then even with that much they would need to spend millions of years guessing in order to find the answer in order to guess your private keys so the fact that the your money cannot be seized is pretty valuable and since the money is entirely accessed with those private keys that means that you can have 20 million dollars in an account and all you need to do is have those private keys. And there are, it is possible to memorize the private keys and there's ways to make it easier to memorize them. And you could then have, essentially you could have the $20 million in your head. 
because if you have the keys written down nowhere and you memorize them and you make sure you don't forget them, then you truly have an unseizable form of money. And it's extremely portable in that case as well because you literally can, you can go anywhere and it's just in your head. You can hold $100 million and not have to actually lug around anything. Another advantage over the existing money system is that most of these cryptocurrencies can be divided down into much, much smaller um, fractions of a full unit compared to the current money system. So what this enables is you can do microtransactions. One of the barriers to microtransactions is that the transaction fees on some of these systems is a little bit too high to do to do extremely small microtransactions. And the reason for that is because, as I mentioned, the, the transaction throughput on these systems is not that high right now. It's about on the order of 10 transactions per second. And because the demand for that transaction space is relatively high right now, that means the transaction fees are, they're a little bit higher than we'd like for microtransactions. As these systems scale, as they are become more advanced and process transactions much faster, it can then become much more feasible to do microtransactions. Right now, for example, it's really not possible under our current system to make a digital purchase for like 50 cents or 10 cents or one cent. If you're using a payment processor like Visa or MasterCard, they, I believe they have minimums and they will often charge a flat fee plus a percentage on transactions. So there might be a, whatever it is, 30 cents uh, minimum fee and then plus a percentage. And that obviously makes transactions of like one cent not feasible. So those are some of the more well-known advantages to cryptocurrencies, but the list I gave is definitely not exhaustive. And the most, one of the more interesting things about cryptocurrencies is that since these projects are implemented in computer code, they can be iterated on extremely rapidly. And since the code is open source, everybody can see what everybody else is doing. So it's very easy, well, it's at least possible for one project to see that another project has implemented some feature that's really useful and for them to take that feature and just adopt it into their system. They can even copy the code directly. There's no reason, there's nothing stopping them from doing that. So while cryptocurrencies have the advantages that I've listed, there's more ideas and use cases being thought of every day, new features that are being proposed, and the space is evolving extremely rapidly and new advantages are being added all the time. So I haven't talked much about Bitcoin specifically yet, but I probably should do that. So Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency. The white paper, the document which described how the currency would work was published in 2008. And it was published by someone named Satoshi Nakamoto and nobody knows who they are. The name they used was not a real name. It was a, it was a pseudonymous handle. And the person, Satoshi, spent some time in the Bitcoin community 
after they created the Bitcoin community, they spent some time developing the software that would run the currency. And at some point, a couple years, I think later, they simply went dark. They stopped responding and they no one knows where they went. No one knows who they are. The Bitcoins that Satoshi mined, it is known where those Bitcoins are. They haven't moved. So Satoshi developed the currency and did some mining and then just left and hasn't touched the money. So Bitcoin, the system Bitcoin went live on January 9th, 2009, and it's been running ever since. It is the largest cryptocurrency by market cap. So I'm not going to get into how Bitcoin actually works. I might do that in a future episode, but I've talked a little bit about how there's a bunch of nodes. These are computers all over the world and they have a copy of the ledger. And in all of these nodes, having these copies of the ledger, there's some resiliency to the network and there's a certain way that they can all agree on what copy, which version of the ledger is the right one so they can all stay in sync. And that is part of the purpose of mining, which you may have heard of, is to to do that function, to keep the, the ledger in sync. But as I mentioned, the function of Bitcoin is to essentially provide this digital ledger. That's what it does. That's the purpose of the whole system. And if you have your private keys, you can make transactions. You broadcast a transaction to the network, a transaction that you've signed with your private key. And then everybody can see that, yes, this person, this transaction came from the person who controls the money in the corresponding account. And if everything looks good, then the ledger is altered and your transaction is completed. The other cryptocurrencies work in a similar way in that they have typically a a private key which gives you complete access to your account. And if you have the private key, you have complete access and if you if you lose it, you lose the money with that account. Now there are a few different ways to manage those private keys. The most popular probably is just to keep your money on an exchange. This is the worst thing to do and lots of people have lost lots of money doing this. What this means is if you open an account on Coinbase, for example, you give them some information, you use your credit card, you make a purchase to buy some Bitcoin and you just leave it there. And what that means is that the you never received or wrote down or dealt with the private keys associated with that account because the the Bitcoin that you purchased is actually just in an account controlled by Coinbase. So they have an account on the Bitcoin network. They control the keys to that account. And what they do is they just say, okay, you want to buy $100 worth of Bitcoin. We'll take your $100. We will buy or allocate you the corresponding amount of Bitcoin and we will just hold it in our wallet in our Bitcoin account that we have the keys for and you do not really have control over that Bitcoin that you think you have until you until you request that the Bitcoin 
that you have purchased be moved to a new Bitcoin account. Until you do that, until you move your money off of the exchange, you're really not in control of that. So when you have your money off of the exchange, when it's in a regular Bitcoin account, you have some private key or keys that is associated with that account. There's many ways to store that private key. It's not so large that you can't write it down, although it's pretty, it's a bunch of numbers and it's not easy to, to write down accurately, but you can write it down. You can keep it as a paper wallet, which is where it's just written on paper, or you can use something like a hardware wallet, which keeps your private keys inside the device and never actually exposes them. Instead, it will allow you to make the transactions inside the device so the keys are never exposed and then broadcast the transactions out of the, the device, out of the hardware wallet. Now, I've talked a little bit about exchanges. There's a, there's a couple different categories of exchange. There are, there's on-ramps like Coinbase. These are, these are platforms or exchanges where you can take some fiat money like Canadian dollars or US dollars and you can buy cryptocurrency with that money. The another kind of exchange is a crypto to crypto exchange. So let's say you use Coinbase, you bought some Bitcoin, you transferred off of Bitcoin into or off of Coinbase into a, a Bitcoin address that you control. You could then send that Bitcoin to a an exchange like Binance and you could do some trading. You could trade some of that Bitcoin for Ether or for any other token or any cryptocurrency that exists that's listed on Binance. And then when you're finished trading, you can then transfer the, the tokens off of the exchange. So Coinbase lets you go from fiat, like Canadian or US dollars to crypto. And then a exchange like Binance allows you to go from one crypto to another and back and forth. So I started the show talking about money, the functions of money and the properties that make some material or system function as a good money. And then we talked about the, some of the properties of cryptocurrencies and how those can potentially make for a better money. If we're going to complete the conversation about the money aspect of cryptocurrencies, and there are actually other aspects of cryptocurrencies, but that's well beyond the scope of this podcast. We have to talk a little bit about Ethereum. I'm not going to have time to go into Ethereum in depth, but in a nutshell, what Ethereum does is while Bitcoin allows for simple, relatively simple transfers between accounts, you can send money, you can receive money, you can do things that are a little more complicated, like require, you can have an account that requires that two people sign a, sign the transactions from that account. So you can have this kind of shared account system. There's simple things you can do like that, but there's Bitcoin is essentially just providing the basic money functions that we're all familiar with. Now, Ethereum came along after Bitcoin and provided a similar system in many ways, except that there's a complete programming language baked into the system. What this allows you to do is to do all kinds of complex things with this digital money. You can, you can write software that facilitates loans and derivatives and all kinds of other financial instruments and mechanisms that we're familiar with today. 
these are being implemented on this new system and this this movement or this this new ecosystem that's being built is often referred to as DeFi for decentralized finance or OpenFi for open finance or sometimes DopeFi for decentralized and open but this this new this platform and this new system is providing potentially an entirely new property for money. So I mentioned some of the properties that we we like to have in a good money, things like fungibility, things like durability. But now we may have just discovered a new property of money and we may decide that this property is actually a requirement going forward. We never had this property before. The property is programmability. The ability to write arbitrary financial code that allows you to do things with money that were just literally never possible before. And that's why I find Ethereum so exciting. There's many other aspects to Ethereum. There's many other applications beyond money. It's kind of crazy that money is such a huge thing and finance is such a huge thing, but that's still only one aspect of the Ethereum platform and of cryptocurrencies in general. There's crazy things like DAOs and all kinds of other stuff. So I've barely scratched the surface of the vast topic of cryptocurrencies, but I'm going to have to wrap up for today. Thank you for listening. Please rate and subscribe. If you have an idea for the a show or you want to be on the show, you can email us at falltolerant@membran.net. You can follow us on Instagram. It's at Membran Labs. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. I'm at JordanMMCK. My coworker hosts a really good podcast called Off Key. It's a music podcast. My coworker's name is Linza. And Off Key and Fault Tolerant, both the podcasts are produced by Membrane Entertainment Canada. We're a music services and distribution company, and we're exploring some cool blockchain tech. That's what I'm working on. If you're in the Victoria area and you want to record a podcast or potentially rent some of our studio space, you can go to membranelabs.com. Okay, thank you for listening and I'll see you in two weeks.